Hey everybody, Cheryl Ackeson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Ackeson Podcast. Today we have something that some of you have been asking for, an interview on this podcast with the Democrat candidate for president, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. This is a no-holds-barred talk about Biden's most recent fall, whether Kennedy would be willing to partner with Trump, banning pharmaceutical ads, rebuilding America's health agencies, the chronic illnesses destroying American society, rooting out federal agency corruption, U.S. wars, the media, and family. I've interviewed Robert F. Kennedy Jr. before. In fact, I think my first interview with him was about 18 years ago when I was doing investigative reporting to CBS News, and as you will hear in this podcast, CBS at the time, like other networks and news organizations, was aggressively covering a lot of pharmaceutical controversies, including the link between vaccines and autism. It was before the media turned its back on fair coverage of these issues, before really the pharmaceutical industry took such a firm hold, such a firm grip on so many in the media and so much of our information. A lot of that was exposed in a way it had never really been exposed before during the COVID pandemic and the control of information. We're going to talk about all of that today with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Some of you have been asking me to get him on this podcast. I think the same sorts of things that interest you in the topics we discuss here make you very interested in Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And maybe you've heard me say, in my view at least, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is to the Democrat Party, the mainstream establishment party, much like what Donald Trump is to the establishment Republican Party, which makes for a very interesting dynamic as we head into the 2024 presidential campaign. I started by asking Kennedy to describe a little bit about his background before we get into the meaty issues of the day. Okay, well, my name is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Um, I, uh, I've spent my career as an environmental attorney representing uh, originally commercial fishermen on the Hudson River suing polluters. We created a group called Riverkeeper, and that was uh, that helped restore the Hudson. We, we brought over 500 lawsuits against, um, against polluters on the river. We forced polluters to spend about $4 billion remediating the river. And uh, today, the Hudson is an international model for ecosystem protection. It has, uh, it, it is one of the most, one of the richest rivers in North America. It produces more pounds of fish per acre, more biomass per gallon than any other waterway in uh, the North Atlantic. It's the last refuge for many species that are going extinct elsewhere. Um, it's the only river left in the North Atlantic that still has a strong spawning stocks of all of its anatomists, the migratory fish, migratory species of fish. It's kind of a Noah's Ark in a species warehouse and the miraculous resurrection of the Hudson has inspired the creation of other river keepers now on 350 waterways in 46 countries. So we have each one has a patrol boat. Each one has a full-time bay water keeper, and most of them litigate against polluters. And I, uh, in around 2014, I started another group 
uh, called the World Mercury Project. I helped co-found it, and then it later turned into Children's Health Defense. Children's Health Defense is a is a group. It's kind of it's a leading group that addresses the chronic disease epidemic in children uh, and tries to end the, uh, the the exposures to toxins that are responsible for the explosion of chronic disease in American children and, you know, children all over the world, although American children are the most affected. Uh, 54% of American children are now debilitated by uh, lifetime chronic diseases, including neurotoxic, uh, neurological disease, neurological injuries, neurodevelopmental diseases like ADD, ADHD, speech delay, language delay, tics, Tourette's syndrome, ASD, autism, narcolepsy, uh, and then autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and juvenile diabetes, and then allergic diseases like peanut allergies, food allergies, anaphylaxis, eggs, etc. And uh, I'm now a presidential candidate. Uh, so that's that's a recap, Cheryl. Just to start with a little bit of news, the day we're recording this. Did you see the video of poor President Biden just had a pretty hard fall? I think it was an Air Force Academy ceremony. Yes, I did. I mean, just because someone falls, I fall. It doesn't mean much necessarily, but certainly it continues to raise the question. And I, I assume part of the reason you're running is there are a lot of people who do think there need to be more choices on the Democrat side next time around. What are your initial thoughts about that and about have you officially been told there won't be a debate on the Democrat side? Yeah, I, there is. A, you know, the DNC has publicly announced that there won't be any debates. Um, and I don't know. Oh, I, I doubt if that will change. Uh, I think it's not a good thing for democracy. I think it's not a good thing to have the optics at a time in our nation's history when so many Americans uh, are losing faith in the electoral system, that believe that uh, elections are fixed and that they believe that right, rightfully or wrongfully, and they believe that the whole system is rigged against the little guy. Um, it's uh, it's not a good thing to, to be uh, making shortcuts in democracy. Um, and, you know, we need to have debates. Uh, we need to make, make it... So we're not like the Soviet Union, where the party picks the candidates, but there's actually democracy. There's retail politics that politicians are, you know, are talking to Americans in barbershops and nail salons and diners and uh, and gas stations and uh, and you know not just carpet bombing the country with you know with with a billion dollar advertising campaign um, using money that they've raised from billionaires. Uh, it, it, it's important, I think, that we have town halls and that the politicians really talk to people. But I don't know if that's going to happen in the Democratic primaries. If you were going to have a debate where President Biden was involved, what would you be looking forward to in terms of a strong point you think is on your side or a point of, point of difference that you'd be? Well, we have lots of points of difference. Uh, you know, I think it's inexcusable that the Democratic Party and a Democratic president were was participating from the White House in censoring political opponents and censoring uh, uh, critics of public health policies or other policies, including you know the the, the foreign policies. 
I don't think we should have censorship at all in this country. And I think it's dangerous for our our bill, you know, for our our democracy. It's the it's the beginning of it's the it's the slippery slope toward totalitarianism. Um, I differ with President Biden on the war in Iraq. I don't think we should should be the steps that have been taken by this White House have consistently enlarged that war and made it more deadly for the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are being trapped now in this uh, proxy war with Russia between two great powers and you know, are the victims. 350,000 Ukrainians have died and they are the victims of geopolitical machinations by neocons in the in the Biden White House and you know of course Vladimir Putin on the on the other side but you know the, the Ukrainians are the victims of this war and, and us uh, fueling the war with Ukrainian bodies is not fueling the, the geopolitical ambitions of you know to depose Vladimir Putin and to exhaust the Russian army is not a good um, it's not a good thing for the Ukraine uh, I differ with President Biden on the lockdowns. The lockdowns were a cataclysm for our country. They cost our, our country $16 trillion. They shifted $4 trillion in wealth from the middle class in our country to the super rich. And uh, we created a billionaire a day during the pandemic. And the billionaires that came into the pandemic with their money increased their wealth by 30% on average. And many of those billionaires were Silicon Valley titans like Bill Gates and uh, Jeffrey Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg, who were actively censoring, with the White House cooperation, criticisms of the lockdowns that were making them rich. Jeff Bezos, in effect, was allowed to shut down all of his competitors. 3.3 million American businesses were shut down without due process, without just compensation. And we were all given a three-year training course on how to use Amazon. And, uh, and you know, Black-owned businesses were devastated. 41% of Black-owned businesses will never reopen. Uh, many of those businesses have sweat equity and currency in them. And, um, and you know, that those were that's just some of the mistakes that I think the Biden White House has made. When you speak about the censorship and the COVID lockdowns, you're in agreement with a good number of conservative voices. But the way the media portrays it, it's sort of like conservatives think that and liberals think the other thing. You think there are a lot of Democrats that agree with you maybe they're they haven't we haven't heard as much from them in the media but there are are there a lot who are aligned with your line of thought on those things well i run into a lot that are you know and 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 there's separated i mean there's a lot of democrats who align with me on the war but not on the but are not sure about what happened during covid you know i don't know i i I, I you don't really I can't tell you how many people of each party are supportive of which issues, but I know I have a, a lot of um, our own internal polling shows that of all the candidates, I'm the strongest among independents, and that I draw a lot of Republicans and a lot of Democrats as well. Well, the funny thing I've heard, and love to hear what you say about this, but people tweeted to me when there's been some discussions about politics going on, they wish you would run with Trump. And 
I know you've spoken to Trump and met him, but you guys, I won't say are polar opposites. He's not really all that conservative on a lot of topics. But what are your thoughts about people who say that sort of thing? Have you heard that, too? I have heard it. It's not something that I would consider. I, you know, I I have differences, I think, in governing style and um, and a vision for this country than President Trump. But I think I agree with him on a lot of issues. I agree um, that, you know, we should be winding down the warfare state. I wish when he was president, he had done more to do that. Um, and, you know, he, he spoke of many of the the, um, the provocations that got us into the war with Ukraine were the direct result of his interventions, you know, of, of abandoning the, the nuclear test, the nuclear, uh, the intermediate nuclear missile treaty, walking away from it and uh, against the objections from the Russians and then putting Aegis missiles in, in Romania and Poland and continuing to move NATO to the east, which Russia said was a, a red line. And then also training NATO, training uh, the Ukraine uh, for interoperability with NATO and preparation for bringing the Ukraine into the NATO, into NATO, all those were provocations that he should have been avoiding. And uh, unfortunately, you know, we laid the groundwork for he laid the groundwork for the Ukraine war rather than de-escalating, which is what we should have been doing. I don't know if you remember because so many people have interviewed you or you've done so many interviews, but. My first interview with you was when I was working investigating reporter at CBS. And back in the day, I guess we're talking the early 2000s, the networks and major media were covering the vaccine safety issues. There were many arising, a lot of studies coming out, links to autism being acknowledged by government insiders and in government court cases. And it wasn't, I guess, the big controversy it came to be when the pharmaceutical industry and government got involved to make sure those things couldn't be discussed. But I remember one day you made news on something or other and the evening news for CBS said, can you get an interview with Kennedy? They, they assigned me to cover these topics. I didn't know much about them. Hadn't gone down the rabbit hole. And I flew up and flew back. I, I can't remember if you were in New York or Massachusetts, got the story on that day, that night on the evening news. And from there, I, I really have followed you in terms of you're really not a top line guy, you know the, the littlest detail about these studies and medical facts. It's I was very impressed because a lot of folks, they don't have the time or maybe the interest or the you know bandwidth to do all that, but you've really dug in and people should know that when they try to discuss and debate you on these topics, there's probably no one that knows them better. So you skip ahead to you had an interview with someone, I think, from ABC recently, who I, I think is fair to say wouldn't have known probably even a fraction of what you know about the topic of vaccines and tried to tell you that you were wrong about things or that you were putting out disinformation. That must be frustrating to you're going to have to run against a media that doesn't understand issues as well as you do some of these issues and are going to nonetheless declare that they know the truth. <laughs> well, anyway, Cheryl, I, I feel like you're telling me that I got you fired, which I apologize for. But I know that you went, you did go down that rabbit hole, and uh, and it cost you your job, and it cost you a lot more. And you know, I think you are, uh, you know, of all the people in the in journalism, maybe you 
and Bill Bigtree have shown, um, and a couple of other people as well. Uh, ben Swan, I think, is another, but you've shown tremendous courage and uh, and you've dug in and learned the facts and then stuck to, you know, maintained your personal integrity, which ultimately is the only thing we've got at the end of our lives. And you're going to be able to face your maker and with yours completely intact. So I, uh, you know, I have such great admiration and affection for you for doing that. But I also apologize to you for any role that I had in your career demise. Well, that is so kind of you. I don't, I don't look back at all upon any negativity like that right now. I, I stayed at CBS through 2014. I left of my own volition, but yes, it's because they wouldn't cover a variety of stories, honestly, anymore. But that was sort of the beginning of the media overall changing, which I think is, I think that's going to probably be a challenge you know you're facing. How do you, how do you deal with the media? Trump had the same issue that's not going to be unbiased or honest in in many cases on topics that that you care about or that are important i'm sure you've you've already kind of walked through this in your mind how you're going to do that yeah i mean i you know i i am not going to get any quarter from the mainstream media i'll continue to talk to them and i you know i'm basically out to anybody um but the corporate media is going to be opposed to my candidacy, which, you know, they should be because, uh, you know, I, I'm i going to, I'm going to do things when I get into office that are probably going to hurt their business model, including get getting uh, pharmaceutical advertisements off of television. That's a very big one. I mean, a lot of people agree with that, but I, that's a real big policy. So, uh, so I expect them to resist with uh, with every you know molecule of energy that they can summon, and I don't expect uh, fair play from them, and uh, I don't expect honesty from them. Um, but uh, but you know, there's other ways that I can reach the public these days. I can reach them through some of the social media. You know, uh, Elon Musk has freed up Twitter. Um, so that you know, we can say things that we're not we're you know once verboten, um, and then the, there's a whole new universe of podcasts that you know that reach huge numbers of people, including a lot of young people. And to me, it's a it's a really wonderful renaissance. I mean, if you think about it, CNN gets about three hundred I don't know three hundred fifty thousand viewers a night. Tucker was getting 10 times that, uh, 4.5 million before he was fired. And, uh, but Joe Rogan, when he had Peter McCulloch on, got 40 million. So he gets 100 times what CNN gets. And there are many other podcasters that get two, three, 10, or 20 times what CNN gets. And so I think there's ways to reach Americans now without being completely. Um, uh, subservient to the mainstream corporate media. Speaking of which, I mean, it's a complicated equation. What's brought us to where we are today with the management of information with the mess during COVID. I was looking over for a book I'm writing what CDC thinks its problem was when they did had to do a look back not long ago versus what the real problems were. They have yet to address um corruption, intentional disinformation, and that's not 
something unprovable. We, we've been able to prove that they were alerted to errors and things that they said, and then continue to, after acknowledging the errors, put out disinformation that would, in every case as it happens, tend to press more people toward a vaccine at any cost kind of policies or, you know, approach. And um, what would you do to CDC? The Republicans actually told me if they took over Congress and they only got the House in the last election, of course, but they plan to do some very serious oversight. I'm not saying it's over, but the top to bottom overhaul that even CDC supporters like Larry Gostin think should be done. No one's really even talking about that. And, and they have zero confidence or they don't hold the confidence of many people in the American public, particularly after COVID. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I look so forward to going to Atlanta myself and, uh, and supervising the overhaul of CDC. I know exactly what to do. And, uh, you know, I will, I will uh, unravel the corruption there. I know the individuals who need to leave and need to be um, transferred out of powerful positions. And then I'm going to put people in those positions. A lot of policy is personnel. I'm going to put the people in those positions who are actually concerned with public health rather than pharmaceutical industry profits. I'm going to change the mission of CDC and make it more, and NIH, by the way, and FDA, and, and uh, direct them to uh, toward the problem of solving our chronic diseases, which are much more debilitating and much more devastating to the American public than infectious diseases, far, far more so. And in fact, you know, we had the highest death rate in the world from COVID. And, and uh, we have 4.2% of the globe's population. We had 16% of the COVID deaths uh, with the highest body count of any country in the world. And part of the reason for that is that we have the highest chronic disease rate. And so the question is, was it COVID killing those people or was it chronic disease? And, you know, I would argue that it was chronic disease. Uh, CDC itself says that the average death from COVID was in Americans that had on average 3.8 chronic diseases that were all potentially fatal. So um, we, need to, we need to solve our chronic disease issue. You know, if we do that, the infectious disease issue will solve itself. And uh, NIH, you know, it has turned itself into an incubator for pharmaceutical products. It's, it's supposed to be said, asking questions like, where is the autism epidemic coming from? Where is the peanut allergy coming from? Where are the all these autoimmune diseases like arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis? Uh, where are they coming from? Why is NIH not doing those studies? We, you know, we know it's an environmental toxin in each case, and it's not going to change the universities the way that uh, NIH relates to the universities. It's going to change. Uh, I'm going to bring in these scientific journals to the Justice Department, and I'm going to tell them that we're going to file racketeering case against them if they don't change pharmaceutical lies industry lies about stop becoming a being a vessel for uh, mercantile propaganda of the pharmaceutical industry uh, because they're lying to the public they're lying to physicians they're causing enormous harm and uh and so you know those are some of the things that i'm going to do 
I think those are huge. And from someone like you that has such an understanding of them, just from the stories I've been assigned to cover over the years, I've been asking the same question. It's almost like we're being distracted by certain things to not look at root causes. Why, when you go in with a cancer diagnosis, does virtually no doctor say, I wonder why your immune system couldn't fight the cancer or what caused the cancer? They just want to cut off a body part or treat you with a poison. And I'm not saying that shouldn't be done. I'm not a doctor, but isn't it important to figure out what's causing all of these things? There was no, almost virtually no juvenile Crohn's disease, another immune disorder, um, a couple decades ago. All these things have spiked. These new things like POTS and juvenile diabetes and all these autoimmune things. And surely we should be asking the questions about that and the spike in autism, but instead it's been so muddied by the industries that control information. And I really think don't want those questions asked or the root causes addressed. Of course not, because, you know, at the end of any, if you start pulling on those strings, at the end of that string is going to be a big shot. It's going to be the chemical industry. It's going to be the pesticide industry. It's going to be the pharmaceutical industry. And, um, and, and those are all the industries that have captured NIH. And, uh, and so they don't want to know the answers to those questions. I'm um, questioning two journals now and having trouble. Surprisingly, I've, I've been able to get corrections in journals before when I've seen problems, but two right now are so far ignoring me. One is a new study in a neurology journal that my read of it was they studied a lot of patients that had adverse events after COVID vaccine, expected adverse events or ones that have been identified like strokes, and then concluded, to your point earlier, that every patient had pre-existing conditions Therefore, they seem to exonerate the vaccine. They seem to say, see, the vaccine couldn't have caused it. All these people were already sick. And my question to them that they're not answering so far is, how did they account for the obvious fact that if you are already sick or have pre-existing risk factors, that a vaccine of any kind could potentially be riskier for you? And, and I can't get an answer to that, but certainly that should have been addressed in a journal article on this topic. Well, it should have been addressed in the clinical trials for the COVID vaccine, too. But un- unfortunately, in the clinical trials, they excluded people with, who had chronic diseases. So they weren't testing the vaccine on the American public. They were testing it on, you know, uh, basically a population of, of uh, you know, the Avengers of, of, of people who were completely well. And that's what they do with all vaccines. They don't test them on a group that actually looks like the population. And so, um, and then they, they seem surprised when the vaccine kills people with chronic disease. Like, you know, we had no, we had no knowledge of this. How would we know? And well, of course you wouldn't know because you didn't test it on those people. Well, um, and then I was looking at a continuing medical education class that doctors can take to stay current with their specialties. You know, they have to have education. And maybe people don't know that a lot of these are sponsored by pharmaceutical companies. And even if the speakers disclose their affiliations with pharmaceutical companies somewhere, the public doesn't know that, that their doctors are being taught by industry experts. So 
Let me sum up by saying this was this came out today. It was called Updates and Advances in COVID-19 Trends and Prevention in Pediatric Patients. So I'm like, oh, what are they saying about kids now that we know virtually, you know, no healthy kid has died of COVID, of course, and COVID rarely makes any child sick unless they already have something, you know, severely wrong with them. Well, this whole slideshow I looked at, Continuing Medical Education for Doctors, was clearly vaccine-oriented, despite the fact that all the science that's, I think, independent has proven that children shouldn't get the vaccine for COVID. It's not effective. It's not necessary for them. So I looked at who's teaching this. And if you click on the disclosures, teaching this course is a guy named Saul Faust, who gets research funding from AstraZeneca, GlaxoSmithKline, Johnson & Johnson, Merck, Pfizer, Sanofi, Moderna, Novavax, then there's the next guy spoke uh, to give the, teach this class to doctors about how good vaccines are for children for COVID. His name's George Cassianis. He's a consultant or advisor for Merck, Novavax, Pfizer, Sanofi, and four or five others. Point being, um, there's a whole system, and you've addressed it, but the scientific journals, the academic institutions, the you know, our federal agencies, that's just a job that it's hard for me to understand at this stage, how anybody can really attack that. Yeah. Well, it is, uh, it does seem intractable, but it can be done. And, uh, but we need somebody in the white house who actually has the stomach for that kind of fight. Um, and who knows how to do it, who understands these agencies, who is not intimidated by the agencies. And the agencies, you know, are always going to try to commit civil disobediences because they don't, you know, they want to lock in the corruption. I mean, look at NIH, NIH, if you work for NIH and you work, you know, on a drug, which they, you know, which they develop, the way, the way it works is they have $42 billion drop budget. They develop drugs, they find molecules in their lab, which will, you know, that, that will kill certain viruses. And then they they market that out, they, they farm that out to a university, to a researcher, what they call a principal investigator, who's usually the head of a medical school department. And that principal investigator will then investigate it first, usually <laughs> using animals. So it's um, you know, monkey trials or something like that to see if it kills the virus in the monkey and doesn't kill the monkey. And then the second phase is you test it, which is called phase one. You test it on human beings and a small number of human beings and see if it works. And then and you do a large number and you may pay the age, could pay as much as $20,000 per recruit to the principal investigator. Well, the university takes at least half of that money, include and sometimes seventy-five percent. And then the university, if this ends up, and then after the phase two trial, you you phase two you you try you test it on a larger group of people, and then phase three you test it on thousands of people. And to pay for that, they bring in a pharmaceutical company and they sell the drug to that pharmaceutical company. They half the patent to them. NIH keeps some of the patent. The university keeps some of the patent. The university researcher keeps some of the patent. And the individuals in NIH who worked on the initial drug also get margin rights for the royalties and the patent. 
so the, so individual regulators at NIH who are supposed to be regulating this drug actually could collect $150,000 a year for the rest of their lives and their children collected and their children as long as that drug's on the market. So they're paying for their boat, their kids' education, their car, their house with by creating new drugs, and they do not want to find problems with those drugs. So the very regulated, the, the entire regulatory function has been subsumed by these mercantile ambitions of the people who work for these agencies. It's an extraordinarily corrupt system. It is agency capture on steroids. We shouldn't have regulators making money from the drugs they regulate. That's like if at, you know if we let EPA get half of its budget from the coal industry and then make money on coal sales and individuals in the EPA making money on coal sales. It's not, it, that's not regulation. So uh, we need to end those systems, which are just corrupt in their, you know, in their conception. And we need to turn the regulatory agencies back to doing what they need to do, which is to make sure that our drugs are safe and that they're effective. And, uh, and you know, pharmaceutical industry profits are their last concern. And how about alternatives? I mean, right now, um, as you've stated, the money is in coming up with a treatment for something, certainly not preventing it, because that would take money out of the pockets of some of these same companies. If you could do something that would avoid the child from getting the juvenile diabetes, for example. So someone's got to fund that stuff. And right now there's, you know, the government's not, I'm not saying there's no studies, but certainly the research priorities aren't toward these things that wouldn't make a pharmaceutical company a lot of money. There's just not a priority for that kind of research, but it's probably the most important kind that should be conducted. Yeah, and you know what? Let, let's let's be honest, though. There's We should be funding a national research on alternative medicine, on integrative medicine, on ways to strengthen the immune system, on, you know, on all these you know alternatives that have been on, on dietary changes on um on exercise and uh and even you know osteopathic solutions chiropractic solutions naturopathic solutions let's look at them let's apply science to them uh, let's not just look at um at molecules that may be profitable for the drug companies there are you know, expired drugs that have been shown to have miraculous like in, include ivermectin that 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 is patent expired cost five cents a pill and it had a miraculous curative impact on covid but it had to be suppressed because it was competing with you know high value med medications that represented big profit centers for the pharmaceutical companies and um and we need to change the way that NIH operates completely around and you know we need to elevate people in those agencies who are actually deeply deeply concerned and deeply thoughtful about public health and have open minds and are not locked into a pharmaceutical paradigm and to a and to a pharmaceutical profit chain much more after a short break Two more topics I'd love to address. One of them is sort of concern among the American public about not just their loss of faith in 
our medical public health agencies, but also in Department of Justice. And in some respects, Department of Education, you can look at our intel agencies and, and people really feel um, in a good percentage study uh, survey show, not just one side of the political spectrum, feel like there's a corruption or a systemic problem inside these agencies. And I'll, I'll just say, I just got a FOIA response, Freedom of Information Act request. This is one tiny slice of the problem. The federal agencies thumb their nose at the law and nothing happens to them. But I've been asking for the after action reports on the withdrawal from Afghanistan. We own that information, the lessons learned, basically, which is done after every military action. Couldn't get it after Benghazi, which I think is in violation of law, but they just wouldn't give it. I got two pages today, several years after asking for it, two pages from the military, and the first page is entirely redacted. There's no date on it. And the second page says pretty much nothing. So I don't know. I just look at anybody trying to get information that we own from our federal agencies, including when Congress tries. I'm not sure they try all that hard. But what do you do about that? Do you see that as a do you see it as a big issue as I do as a member of the press? And what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, there's a lot of there's there's a bunch of different issues you raise. One is transparency in government. And that should be something that, you know, I have a great interest in across the all the agencies. I've probably filed thousands of freedom of information requests. And, you know, there it's absolutely critical part of democracy. And the agencies now have all these ways of stonewalling it. And there's, um, you know, uh, you can litigate and you can win that litigation. And uh, But it takes years and it takes, takes a lot of money. Um, and the other issue is that the agencies are actually corrupt. They're doing things they're not supposed to be doing. The federal enforcement agencies, we saw from the Twitter files that FBA, FBI, was illegally censoring people at the direction of the White House. Uh, they had their own uh, portals in Twitter. And you had FBI and CIA people who were involved in the censorship. And then you, you know, the Durham report has come out. And, you know, I, I'm not a friend of Donald Trump's. But what we're seeing, we see 50 CIA agents who sign a letter saying that the Hunter Biden story is a fake. It's, a, you know, it's a Russian um disinformation and either they deliberately lied or they said something with a certainty that uh they shouldn't have either way they you know the cia is prohibited from from participating in american politics and this was a disinformation campaign against a political candidate and that is wrong. It doesn't matter who the candidate is. It is wrong. It should not happen in America. And, you know, we also know that FBI was you know, involved in, 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 uh, in you know, creating disinformation as well. Oh, and the Steele report and all of that stuff um, was, you know, that they we did not. There was a complete collapse of law enforcement function. And they, law enforcement did what everybody at the beginning, when we created the CIA in 1947, everybody was concerned that if we created a secret spy agency, it would ultimately begin trying to rule American politics the way that the Gestapo and the KGB and the Stasi and Stavok did in in totalitarian nations and that it was inconsistent 
with a democratic and open society to have these secret spy groups and that they would they were they were antithetical to democracy and would end up destroying it we're watching that right now and we need extreme reform within those agencies you know we need to get them out of american politics we need severe sanction for people who break the law unfortunately as you point out those people end up getting promoted i mean the the person who masterminded the cover-up of uh, of the Guantanamo Bay torture tapes was um, Avril Haines, who is now the top spy in the country. There were so many CIA agents who were angry at her for breaking the law. And those agents were made the fool. So the most corrupt agents, agent in the agency actually has got promoted to run to be the top spy in America. She's the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence. She sits on the National Security Council, which manages manage the COVID epidemic. She was also the same agent who uh, who presided over Event Two Hundred One. You know the pandemic, this very suspicious pandemic, coronavirus pandemic simulation that took place in October of twenty nineteen, four three months before we were told that coronavirus a pandemic was actually circulating, and you know her function there was to uh, collaborate with the other co-host, George Gao, the director of the Chinese CDC. And, you know, they conducted, anybody can go on YouTube and watch this. They conducted a discussion on the last seminar of the day, the seminar number four, about how to censor information, and particularly if people start talking about a lab leak, how to shut down those people and censor them. And how, and Avril Haines says, not only do we have to censor them on social media, but we have to flood this quote, flood the zone with authoritative voices. In other words, propaganda. So she's talking there about propagandizing the American people and shutting down dissent. And it's exactly what they did three months later when coronavirus actually came to public attention. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's these very, very strange things that she's involved in. And then she ends up managing the coronavirus response in the White House. And uh, you, we can't keep elevating the people who are the most corrupt people in our government. Wow, I didn't know that level of detail. That's amazing. I can't wait to talk to you more on my TV show, Full Measure, in the fall, when we come back for season nine, by the way. But lastly, we're of the same generation, you and I. So I'm sure you won't mind if I tell you something you already know. There are a lot of younger people today that know the Kennedy name, but not much beyond that there was a President Kennedy. And can you give me just a little history of where you fit into the Kennedy family for people who are listening that have never looked into that? And any anything you want to say about that? Like, is that is your is your interest in politics now at all inspired in part because of family or just tell us a little bit about that? I mean, the, the, briefly, the history of my family. My fam, all four, all of my grandparents came over in 1848, which was the year of the um, from Ireland, which was the year of the potato famine. So you had, you know, millions of Irish died of starvation um, because the British uh, was holding the grain in um, for export, and big warehouses wouldn't feed them, and uh, many were driven out of. Ireland to America and Australia 
my great grandparents from both sides, great great grandparents came to Boston. Um, they, uh, my my great grandfather, Honey Fitz, uh, John Honey Fitz Fitzgerald. They called him that because he had a beautiful voice that sounded like Honey. Um, became the first Irish Catholic mayor of Boston, and um, the Irish came over. They had not for six hundred years. They've been illegal for them to participate in politics in Ireland, which was a colonial, the first British colony. And they took to politics like starving men take to food. And uh, and they took over Boston. Irish Catholic mayor, his daughter, Rose Kennedy, married my grandfather, Joseph Kennedy, who um, went to Harvard. He was a, a but uh, he was the best baseball player in Boston and I, and he um, went into banking. He made a fortune um, right out of Harvard. He made a fortune in banking. Uh, it's often said that he was a bootlegger, but that is just a, a, a lie that was spread beginning in 1966 by the CIA, actually, by a specific CIA agent who was ch charged with tarring the Kennedy name. And then Rose Kennedy had nine children. He married the mayor's daughter. They had nine children. And um, his eldest uh, son, Joe, was killed in World War II. He was a pilot. And he volunteered for a mission, a very dangerous mission, to, to pilot the first remote-controlled airplane, which was an air bomb. Um, and it blew up when they turned on the remote control. Um, his his daughter, my grandfather's eldest daughter, Kick, her husband was also killed on the Maginot Line in the first days of the war, and then she subsequently died in an airplane crash. Um, his next son, Jack, uh, became, uh, was a war hero, was lost at sea when his uh, ship, his skipper, got cut in two by a Japanese destroyer. He rescued his crew. He came back home a hero. He ran for Congress in 1947 and uh, and went to Congress. And then he went to the Senate, I think, at 56. And he ran for president in 1960. And my father, was, who was his younger brother, was his campaign manager. And he was the first Irish Catholic president of the United States. He was the 35th president. Um, his brother, he named attorney general. Um, they had fought the mafia uh, while he was in the Senate. He was on the rackets committee. And when they got into office, they their principal battle was the civil rights battle. They were allied with Martin Luther King. And they um, and they fought the great battles to get blacks in University of Mississippi, University of Alabama, James Meredith. They sent federal troops to Alabama and Mississippi to get those students in. They fought, fought for the Voting Rights Act uh, to make sure that blacks could vote. Um, they fought for the Freedom Riders to make sure that Rosa Parks and that uh, all you know, every, all blacks could could use public transportation. And uh, and then they fought against war. My uncle refused to send combat troops to Vietnam, even though he was being urged. He refused to send them to Laos. He refused to get into a war with Khrushchev over the Berlin, which his military apparatus and intelligence agencies wanted. He refused to um, 
to get to to invade Cuba in during the Missile Crisis in '62 and during the Bay of Pigs in '60, '61, and um, he only he sent sixteen thousand combat troops to Vietnam and then ordered them all home a month before his death with a national security order. He learned that seventy five they were not combat troops; they were advisors. They were mainly Green Berets and helicopter pilots who were trainers. But he learned that 75 of them had died, and he said no, no American should die in Asia, in a ground war in Asia, and he called them all home. And um, he was killed a month, three weeks later, and President Johnson, a week after that, who took over for him, remanded that order and then ended up sending 250,000 troops to Vietnam. Uh, uh, Nixon took over after my father. My, my father ran against Johnson to end the war in 68. He won the California primary, chased Johnson out of the race, and would have almost certainly been president, but he was shot in the 68 in Israel, the night of his victory in the California primary. And uh, Nixon then took over, sent 560,000 troops to Vietnam. 56,000 would not come home, including many of my friends and my cousin, George Schenkel, um, who died during the Tet Offensive. And uh, my uncle, Edward Kennedy, became senator in 60, uh, 64. And he served in the Senate for 50 years, uh, one of the oldest serving senators in history. He has more legislation bearing his name um, than any senator. And he was famous for working on both sides of the aisle. Many of his best friends were Republicans, um, and he also was a big opponent of war. So he uh, he fought the Iraq against the Iraq War, which Joe Biden supported strongly, led the support for, and um, and every other war that we had. So um, I mean, that's kind of the brief history of my family. My my father was one of the youngest children, but the first to marry and. He had, he and my mother, Ethel Skakel, had 11 kids, and I'm the third of 11. And I had a brother, Joe, who served in Congress for about 12 years. His son also served, Joey, also served in Congress. I have a cousin, Patrick Kennedy, who, who was Teddy's son, who served in Congress. And my uh, cousin, Teddy Kennedy, has also served in public office. My sister, Kathleen, has been lieutenant. Governor of Maryland, and um, and uh, you know, I got a lot of other. I got uh, twenty nine other Kennedy cousins, who all of whom are involved in one way or another in public service. Holy cow, that's a lot to keep track of. You know, uh, you, did you say Senator Edward Kennedy is was your uncle? Yeah, he was my uncle. So when I was working on the Hill for CBS, or I'd go, I'd go there and back, I was assigned there full time for a year or so for CBS, but. I used to see him. I think he had one or two little teeny dogs that he t took to work with him almost every day, I guess. Because I see him walk him outside of the Russell building or one of his aides would walk him outside the Russell building to. Uh, uh, yeah, those, you know, you had a pair of Portuguese water dogs. He was uh, and he'd always carry a tennis racket so that he could bounce balls to the to the dogs and they would fetch him. And, uh, but he was. He was he couldn't bend over because he was in a, a very bad plane crash with Senator Birch Bayh actually the, uh, in 
Iowa campaigning and the pilots were killed. My uncle's back was broken, literally broken in two. Um, and um, he uh, and Birch Bay had to pull him out through the window of the plane. Uh, but after that, you know, he was, Teddy had been a great athlete. He was actually drafted by the Green Bay Packers. Uh, he was, my, he was the youngest brother. Um, and, uh, but after that, he, he ended up because he, uh, he just couldn't exercise anymore. Wow. You talk to those dogs uh, uh, in the Senate and then he'd take them out into the, you know, onto the mall and, and hit the tennis ball for them and they would fetch, fetch it, come back. Well, that's really a piece of living history, or that was a piece of living history. And interesting for me to see as a, then a younger reporter up on Capitol Hill. But thank you for all your time. And I know we're going to talk some more and um, on TV as well. But people will be people have been asking me to get you on the podcast because whatever they like about listening to me, they seem to also have the same kind of appeal or interest in you. So here we are. <laughs> Good to talk to you, Cheryl. Eyeshadow has come a long way since you swiped on one color at a time or practically had to take a master class in cosmetics to get the shading right. Hi, I'm Star, owner of the Lemonade Mermaid, and I've designed an exclusive shade-shifting multi-chrome pigment for eyes that's like no other you'll ever see. Just swipe it on your eyelids and the magic happens. Depending on the angle and light, it shifts between hues of golden pink or green and pink and even purple and gold. The shading is done for you. Just $25 for a jar that will last you months. My website is store.lemonademermaid.life. And listeners of this podcast can get 20% off these incredible pigments by using the checkout code PODCAST. I hope to see you at store.lemonademermaid.life today. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, you'll leave a great review and share it with your friends. And check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, for more original reporting and interviews on off-narrative topics that powerful interests often try to censor. It's never been more important to support independent reporting. You can do that by going to the CherylAckison.com website, click the Store tab, and browse our great products the most popular new slogan that I have on products there is, I need to find some new conspiracy theories. All the old ones came true. Proceeds support causes like the Cheryl Atkinson Ion Awards, giving cash awards recognizing and encouraging independent off-narrative reporting by college students and professionals. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. <laughs>